Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for what we're going to see in this word. We're going to, we thank you for the hopefulness of your nature, the truthfulness of your character. We thank you for your fidelity to your promises. And that's what we're really going to see here, is you're a trustworthy God, a good God, a keeping God, a preserving God. And Father, as we come to the table of communion, we need that. And so would you remind us of this grace in our lives. We pray in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. Rejection is hard. No no one likes to hear the word no. You might be a year and a half or two years old, and those in that age group don't like to hear the word no. They don't like to hear, no, you may not put the knife into the electrical socket. No, you may not... You may not climb the eight-foot stepladder without me being next to you. Uh, no, you may not stay up all night and watch TV and, and drink root beer. No, you may not. No, you may not. No, you may not. If you're 85, you don't like hearing the word no either, do you? You don't, you don't like hearing no, um, we're not going to cover that, um, that payment for your medical bill. You're on your own. We don't like hearing the word no. Rejection is hard. One industry where rejection um, is often expressed is in the publishing industry. So people send in manuscripts to magazines and, and book publishers, and, um, and very often they receive back a rejection letter. And, and some people um, have trouble sending those letters. They, they know how hard it is to hear the word no. And so Brian Doyle, who was the editor of the University of Portland's Portland Magazine, found a creative way to say no. Listen to his rejection letter. Thank you for your lovely and thoughtful submission to the magazine, which we are afraid we are going to have to decline for all sorts of reasons. The weather is dreary. Our backs hurt. We have seen too many cats today, and as you know, cats are why God invented handguns. There is a... Okay, so some of you don't like that one, but it is It is funny. There is a sweet coherence and there's a sweet incoherence and self-absorption in your piece that we find alluring, but we have published far too many of the same in recent years, mostly authored by the undersigned. Did we mention the moist melancholy of the weather? Our marriages are unkempt and disgruntled. Our children surly and crammed to the gills with a sense of entitlement that you wonder how they will ever make their way in the world. We spent far too much money recently on silly graphic design and now must slash the storytelling budget. Our insurance bills have gone up precipitously. The women's basketball team has no rebounders. An aunt of ours needs a seventh new hip. The shimmer of hope that was the national zeitgeist now looks to be nursing a whopper of a black eye. And someone left the toilet paper thingy empty again. Without the slightest consideration, who pays for things like that? And then there were the wet towels on the floor. And the parakeet has a goiter. And and, and the dog barfed up crayons. Please feel free to send us anything that you think would fit these pages. And thank you for considering our magazine for your work. It's an honor. Editors. (laughs) Now, now you got to laugh, right? But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, it's still rejection. It's no. 
And those words are hard to hear. Rejection hurts. But, but there's a kind of rejection that is worse than merely a hurt, an offense. It is the rejection that comes from God that leads to eternal condemnation and His eternal wrath. There is no way to gauge, there is no way to measure that kind of infinite terror. It is an infinite wrath. How will we ever measure how great that rejection from God is? And it is that terror, that fear, that the Apostle Paul anticipates in Romans chapter 11. The nation of Israel has rejected God. They they have repeatedly rejected Him. We see that at the end of chapter 10. Israel has again rejected God. And, And the question then is, will God in turn and in kind reject Israel. That, that's the way we would function. When, when people reject us, it's like, well, fine, I can show you rejection. And we reciprocate in kind. And, and Paul is anticipating that kind of response. If, if Israel has rejected God, is God just going to tear up his covenant with them and say, forget it, I'm done with them. They've rejected me. I'm walking away from them. They're on their own. Is that kind of... Is that the kind of God that God is? And Paul answers with an unhesitating and with a resounding, No! That is not God's way. That is not what God does. God's, God's people may have rejected Him, but that does not mean that God has rejected them. He has made a promise to be their eternal God, and He will not go back on that promise. And that, that idea is going to permeate this entire chapter, but it's, it's really rooted and, and founded on these opening verses in chapter 11. In verses 1 to 6, this is what we're going to find. God is faithful to keep His covenant with His chosen nation, Israel. God is faithful. He has made a covenant. He has made a promise. He has sworn by Himself to that promise to the nation of Israel, and He will keep that promise. But friends, it's not just for Israel that that is a benefit. Because in His covenant-keeping faithfulness, He reveals something about Himself. And that is, He is not just faithful to Israel, but He is faithful to keep His promises with all of His chosen people. And if you're in Christ... He is faithful to keep His saving purposes and promises for you. In these verses, we are going to find five demonstrations of God's faithfulness to Israel. Five five proofs, as it were, that God is faithful to the nation of Israel and not not just faithful to the nation of Israel, but He is faithful to us as well. The first one is found for us in the first verse. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in Paul's salvation. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in Paul's salvation, his personal salvation. Notice he says in verse 1, I I say then, and there he is referring back to chapter 10. So I say then, he's building on something that has gone on in chapter 10. And he says, God has not rejected his people, has he? And when he, when he uses that word people, he's talking about not just individual people, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, but he's talking about a people group, a mass of people. That word almost always is used about a people group or a community. And, and the apostle obviously, having just finished talking about the nation of Israel, is referring to the people group of Israel. God 
God isn't rejecting his covenanted people, Israel, is he? Why is Paul concerned about that? Because Israel has repeatedly been rejecting God. And we've seen that all the way through this book. I mean, think back to chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, Because of your stubbornness, speaking to the nation, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So you have rejected, you've walked away from, you are stubborn, and you are unrepentant in nature. That's the nation of Israel. And all the way through chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, we say, see that same theme repeated. We see it again um, repeatedly in chapter 9. Listen to, what, listen to what he says in chapter 10. Brethren, verse 1, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So God is righteous. God grants them a righteousness, and they want nothing to do with that. They want their own righteousness. Thank you very much. They want their own standard. They don't want God's standard. They don't want God's provision. They want nothing to do with God. They have rejected him in totality such that, notice what he says at the end of that chapter, verse 21, chapter 10, as for Israel, he, God says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They are disobedient, they are rebellious, they are hard-hearted, they want nothing to do with me. They have, now he doesn't use the word in 1021, but they have rejected God. And, and, and that's why the apostles concerned. They've rejected God. Will God reject them? Will God turn his back on them? Will he walk away from them? And the very way that he asks the question anticipates a particular answer. And what he anticipates is no. God has not rejected his people, has he? No. No, he has not. And in case... In case we don't catch that emphasis, that illusion, as he writes, then he answers it directly. May it never be. Now, Paul uses that phrase 14 times many uh, in all of his writings. May it never be. But 10 times he uses that phrase in the book of Romans. So, so Romans particularly, he's wanting to correct error and false thinking about the way God functions and the way God acts and the way we relate to Him. And he wants us to understand, no, under no condition, under no, cir- under no circumstances, may it never come to pass, may it never come to fruition. It is abhorrent to me that you would even think such a thought. No, a thousand times, no. No, God will not reject His people. This is an outrageous idea that God would reject his people. And the rest of this section, he gives us five reasons why that is such an outrageous idea. And the first place that Paul points in verse 1 is to his own salvation. Notice notice the, the word for. May it never be, he says, might, might, that be, might that never come to fruition? Because, for, here's a reason why God hasn't rejected his people. Because I too am an Israelite. That, that is, 
While I have trusted in Christ, I still have my national identity as an Israelite. And I am an Israelite, and at the same time, I am in Christ and receiving some of the benefits of that salvation. I am a, an Israelite by birth and nationality and heritage. And at the same time, I am a believer in Christ that is receiving the benefits that will come to the nation. Not only am I an Israelite, though, but notice what kind of Israelite he is. He says, I am a descendant of Abraham. That is two things. One, I'm not a Gentile. I am an Israelite. But particularly, I am of the lineage of Abraham, which you had to be in order to be an Israelite. But he's also drawing attention to the fact that he's not coming from the line of Esau or Ishmael. But he is coming from the promised line of Isaac and Jacob. So he's coming from the right line from Abraham. He is a genuine Israelite. And not just that, but notice he also says he is of the tribe of Benjamin. Now we know, we know that Benjamin had some prominence in uh, Israel's history. So Benjamin was, was the source for the first king of Israel. So Saul came from Benjamin's line. And we also know that Benjamin was particularly beloved by uh, Jacob. So Jacob loved um, Benjamin and Joseph. But it's not just Jacob that loved Benjamin. Listen to what, listen to what it says about Benjamin in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 12. Of Benjamin, he said, May the beloved of the Lord dwell in security by him who shields him all the day and he dwells, he, Benjamin, dwells between his, God's shoulders. Benjamin is not just beloved by Jacob. Benjamin is beloved by God. He has a, he has a particular place in the plan and the purpose of God. And so when, when Paul says, I'm an Israelite, I'm from Abraham, I'm from Benjamin, it is to say, as he will say elsewhere, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am, I am particularly uh, blessed. I am particularly positioned. I am of all men a Hebrew. He will say something similar in Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. I am well positioned. And, and catch this. This is, this is, a, this is Paul's whole point. He, as a believer, or excuse me, he is a Jew. If anyone is a Jew, Paul is a Jew. And he is a believer in Christ who is receiving from the covenanted promises that God made to Abraham, to Israel, and is fulfilling in Christ. He's a Jew. And he has been redeemed. And if any Jew, if he were the, excuse me, if he were the only Jew to ever be saved by God, that would be proof enough that God has not forgotten, God has not rejected, God has not turned his back on Israel. And yet Paul is not the only Jew to be saved. In fact, he will say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, speaking about his salvation, it is a trustworthy statement deserving, his full, deserving full acceptance, 115, 
that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm foremost of all. And for yet, for the, yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, I'm the worst of sinners, and God is demonstrating through Christ the magnitude of his grace in saving me as an example to everyone else who will believe. In other words, I'm not the only Jew that's been saved. There are many others that have been saved and will be saved as well. Paul's salvation means that God did not, God would not, And God could not reject His people Israel. There is hope for Israel. And friends, it's also a reminder that there is hope for all people that God will be faithful to fulfill His promises. So, one faithfulness, one demonstration of God's faithfulness is in Paul's salvation. A second demonstration of God's faithfulness is in God's choice of Israel. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in His choice of Israel. We see this in verse 2. God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. In fact, this, this verse, in fact, this phrase might serve as the theme of the entire chapter because we see this idea. God has not rejected Israel woven all the way through this chapter. Just glance down with me for a moment at verse 5. In the same way, there has come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. So there, there are a people from Israel. There's a remnant. There, 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 is, there is a group of people. While the whole nation hasn't yet been saved, there is a group of people that are being saved and that are already saved that are present. Verse 11. They, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? In other words, the, the nation of Israel didn't, didn't fall and didn't reject God in, in such a way, didn't stumble in such a way that they fell and they were totally removed out of the plan of God. No. No, they didn't, they didn't stumble in such a way. They didn't fall out of God's blessing. And in fact, notice verse 12. Now, if the transgression, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? In other words, there will be a fulfillment for Israel. God's keeping his promises. You can trust him. He's faithful. He's not rejected his people. Verse 25. I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will be not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening, not a complete hardening, but a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, so God is working in part to harden Israel, not totally, not completely, not finally, so that the Gentiles can be grafted into the promise. And then notice verse 26. So all Israel will be saved. Right now there's a remnant, but there is coming a time when the entire nation will be saved. How? The deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So, so there, there is a preservation of this people that is woven all the way through this book. And, and so that it is no surprise that he comes to verse 33 and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How magnificent is a God who, who saves and redeems 
and keeps His promises in such a way. Now, now the question is, when Paul says God has not rejected His people, on what basis do we know that He has not rejected His people? Notice what he says. He's not rejected His people whom He foreknew. That word foreknew is the same word that he uses in chapter 8, verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. There in 829, he's talking about individuals. He's chosen individuals for salvation to bring them into salvation so that they would be conformed to the image of Christ. Here, he's not talking about individuals, but he's talking about a nation. The choosing and the decreeing that this people of Israel will be his. And it's, it's the same kind of language that the prophet Amos uses in chapter 3 of his prophecy. So he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, hear this, hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. In other words, there's, there's an indictment against you, Israel. And the indictment begins in verse 2, you only have I chosen from among all the families of the earth. You, you are my singular people. Only you have I chosen. Only in fact, it's not just the word chosen in verse 2. It's, it's only you I have known. I have, I have known you. And, and not just know like relational. Well, I know you by name. I know who you are. I know where you work. I know your family. Not that kind of knowing, but the intimacy of fellowship that, that you're drawn together, that you have communion and you're tied together. That intimate relationship. And he says... You only I've known that that the sin of Israel was so great because the choice of Israel as God's people is so great. And what what will God do with with this nation whom he has chosen? What will what will God do with this nation whom he has known? Listen, listen to what he says in Psalm 94, verse 14. For the Lord will not abandon his people nor will he forsake his inheritance. The people may abandon him, but he will not abandon them. He will not turn his back on them. He will not reject them. They have rejected him, but he will not reject them. He will not repudiate them. He will not walk away from them. Listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says, Jeremiah chapter 31. Thus says the Lord, If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for what they have done, declares the Lord. Listen, if you can measure out precisely the magnitude of the heavens, if you can, if you can search and see exactly what the earth is founded on and what is at the core and, and how the earth is built and, and measure it out and examine it precisely, when you can do that, then God will reject His people. What does He mean? He is never rejecting His people. He will not turn His back on them. God, friends, God is incapable of being unfaithful to a promise. You do understand that the omnipotent God has some inabilities, don't you? There are certain things that God cannot do. He cannot lie against His character. 
He cannot speak falsely. He cannot deceive. He cannot fail. He cannot go back on His Word. And that is, that is what this truth is founded on. God has chosen. God has decreed. God has drawn this people to Himself. And He cannot go back on that Word. It has been noted that no message of Scripture is clearer or repeated more often than the unqualified declaration that God can be trusted, that He is the very source and measure of truth. By definition, His divine Word is absolutely trustworthy. Whatever He says is true and whatever He promises comes to pass. God is faithful to His promises. Until a few years ago, I didn't know that it was possible to do this, but I've not only become aware that it is legally possible, I actually know of homes in which this has taken place, where a child has been adopted by a family and a couple, and after a period of time, typically some years, the adoption is rescinded and the child is put back into as a ward of the state. Shocking, isn't it? Friend, if you have been adopted by God, He is incapable of turning you back. He cannot. He will not. He is faithful to keep you. He is incapable of rejecting His people. His people are safe with Him. A third demonstration of God's faithfulness is given to us in verses 2 through 4. There's another question that the Apostle asks in the middle of verse 2. And the first question he asks in verse 1 is anticipating a negative response. The question he asks in verse 2 is anticipating a positive response. Do you not know that the script, what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? We might, we might paraphrase it this way. You do know the story about Elijah, don't you? Well, yes. It was a well-known story then. It's a, it's a well-known story now. And, and what was the story about? The story was about how God was, was pleading against Israel. What's ironic about that word pleading, how he pleads, uh, the end of verse 2, how he pleads with God against Israel. Typically that word pleads has an idea of I'm pleading for someone. So I'm, I'm asking for someone, I'm asking on behalf of someone that something favorable might happen to them. It's almost always the way it's used. But, but this time... Elijah wasn't asking for something favorable to be happening to, to, to Israel. He was asking for something unfavorable to be happening to them. He was pleading against them. And, and the basis of the, of the pleading against them seems to be justified. And, and Paul quotes from 1 Kings 19 in verses 3 and 4. And so he says, you, they have, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. When, when he says they've, they've killed your prophets, he's not just worried about the fact that they've committed murder. I mean, that, that is an issue, but that's not the primary problem. The primary problem with killing the prophets is, the prime, is that the prophets were the means of God declaring His truth to the people. And so when He says they've killed the prophets, what He really means is they have rejected Your Word. They, they don't care about Your Word. They don't care what You say. They're trying to kill what You say. Put, put what You say aside. They've killed Your prophets. They've rejected the message of God's Word and the messengers of God's Word. And then, 
They have also torn down your altars. They have torn down the singular means of worship that God decreed. They've, they've torn down the, 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 the means by which man could be reckoned to be justified before God. They've said God's means of justification doesn't matter. We have our own means. We don't need God's form of worship. We don't need God's form of righteousness. It's even worse. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 also says they have forsaken your covenant. That is, they have rejected you. They've rejected your promises. They've rejected everything that you have granted to them. They have turned their backs on you. They don't want the covenantal relationship with you. Everything they've done, they've destroyed and walked away from you. And and it wasn't just in historic Israel either, was it? Listen to what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews. Verse 15. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. They killed the prophets. And it culminated in killing the prophet, Jesus Christ. It wasn't just that they killed in the Old Testament. They, 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 they killed in the New Testament. They killed Christ. They rejected God in every way. And, and frankly, we think, we think that Elijah's point is pretty much justified. They are, they are rebellious. They're obstinately sinful. And God should just forget about them, lay aside his promises to them, and just start over. That that was Moses' plea on another occasion, and it's Elijah's plea here, and frankly, it seems to be justified. Notice verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? And I read that this week, and I thought, "That's that's a funny way to say that. I mean, I would expect him to say, but what is God's response to him? I would expect him to say, what is the Lord's response to him? But, but, but this phrase, divine response, that little phrase, divine response, is, is actually one word. It is the only time it is used in the New Testament. And I was thinking, what in the world? Why, why does Paul say divine response? Why, why, does he, why does he here, in this circumstance, draw in this word that is never used anywhere else? Because the word has a sense of, of location, and it has a sense of the position of God. It has this idea that he is uniquely deity and awesome in power and glory. It is to say, God in heaven has spoken with authority and clarity. It's not just God has spoken, but but Paul is drawing our attention to the place from which God speaks and the authority with which he speaks and the sovereignty with which he speaks. And what does God say? I have kept for myself 7,000 men. (laughs) Not only are you not alone, Elijah, and by the way, if you were, that would be enough to demonstrate I'm keeping my promises. But you're not alone. I have kept. I have not rejected. I have preserved my people. 7,000. And he uses the word men. It's a a little bit unusual. He's not using the word men for mankind. He's using the, man, the word man to refer to gender. 
And it seems to me, I, I can't validate this absolutely, but it seems to me that the apostle might even just be pointing to the fact that, he, that he's kept 7,000 prophets, not just men, but, but prophets, his men for his time. And they have been preserved for, from false worship of Baal by God's act. And, and he kept them. And notice how the apostle comments about it as well. He doesn't just directly quote from 1 Kings 19, because 1 Kings 19 says, I've kept 7,000 men. And Paul wants us to understand the force of what is said in 1 Kings 19. And he says, he interjects that little phrase, for myself, for me, for my purposes, for my glory, I have kept my people. I have, de- I have kept these 7,000 not just to keep you from fretting Elijah, and we, we would think that, that that's why Jesus is, or that's why God is talking the way he does. I mean, cause, I mean, let's be honest, you read 1 Kings 19, and Elijah sounds just a little bit whiny, doesn't he? You know, it's like, oh, it's me, I'm the only one. I'm faithful, but I'm the only one. And we might read God's response as if to say, Elijah, don't fret, don't worry, I've got others. Now that's true, that's there. But what, what, what Paul would have us to particularly see is not comfort for Elijah, but God is faithful. God's keeping His people. God's not rejected His people. He has not rejected His people to the tune of 7,000 that He has preserved in the midst of massive rejection. Oh, He has His people. God is faithful to Himself. You know what's particularly ironic about this story? Is if you flip over to James chapter 5, you see that, that Elijah was such a righteous man that when he prayed, it stopped raining for three and a half years. Now, now you've had answers to prayer and I've had answers to prayer, but I don't think either one of us has had answers to prayer that, that were such that when we asked, God said, okay, I'm going to stop it raining for three and a half years. Or it's not rained for a long time and the lake is really low and, let, and Terry prayed, so let's bring some rain. Never had that happen. But Elijah was so righteous that when he prayed and asked God for the heavens to dry up, they did. And when he prayed here, God said, absolutely not. That's a vain prayer, Elijah. It's, it's, it's vanity and emptiness to pray that because I cannot reject my people to whom I have made a promise. Listen to what Doug Moo says in his commentary on Romans. God's preservation of a remnant is not only evidence of his present faithfulness to Israel, it is also a pledge of hope for the future of the people. It's not just that he's faithful in that moment. It is a promise that he will always be faithful. And friends, it's not just a promise to Israel. It's a promise to us as well that if we are in him, he is faithful to keep us. He cannot reject those who are His. There's another demonstration of God's faithfulness that's given to us in verse 5. And it is that there is a current remnant. God's faithfulness is demonstrated in God's 
current remnant. There, there's a correspondence that Paul wants us to see what happened in Elijah's day and what was happening in his way. And so he says in verse 5, in the same way then. So there's a, there's a correspondence to Elijah's day. And what is that correspondence? The correspondence is not that people have rejected God, but the correspondence is that there is also come to be at the present time a remnant There was a remnant then and there is a remnant now. And what I want you to see is not so much that there is also rejection and rejection, but I want you to see, Paul says, there's a remnant God's preserving, God's keeping. God has not rejected. God has not turned his back. God is faithful to his promises made to Israel. And and this 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 provision of a remnant is a gracious choice. End of the verse. It is a remnant according to God's gracious, kind, benevolent act. And friends, it's always been true that God has always had a people. It sometimes feels like we're alone, doesn't it? Sometimes it feels that we walk alone. Sometimes it feels like, like there's no one else out there who is righteous. But there's no one else who is walking with us. There's, there's no one else who wants truth. There's no one else who wants freedom from sin. And this is a reminder, God has always had a remnant. It was true in Noah's day. It was true in Lot's day. We've, we've seen in the book of Romans, it was true in Isaiah's day. We've seen, we've seen it all the way through this book that God has been preserving and keeping His people. God has always had a remnant, and that remnant is a reminder that He is not only preserving people, but He is being faithful to Himself. God is merciful, friends, and He has remembered that mercy. And He will preserve, and He will keep. When you look at a rainbow, what do you think about? Well, you think, well, well, isn't that that cool? That's a really pretty rainbow. I always think about the flood. I never see a rainbow without thinking about the flood. So somewhere on this last trip, I don't remember what flight it was, but we were up at 35, 37,000 feet going somewhere, and I looked out the window, and there was a rainbow. That was cool. It was brilliant in all these colors. Just the majesty of this rainbow at 37,000 feet. And what I think about, I thought about 37,000 feet below me, God's not going to wipe it out in a massive worldwide flood again. There's another thing that the Apostle wants us to remember. That every time you see an Israelite who follows the Messiah, it's a promise. It's a reminder of the promise that he will not wipe out his people. He's keeping a remnant so that one day he can fulfill in totality the promise made to Abraham. I wasn't really thinking about that when I was in Israel two weeks ago. And we were interacting with believers and we're in a classroom and we're just teaching and we're opening the Bible and we're opening the New Testament. We're in the Old Testament. We're all over the place and it's just believers and believers. But I worked through this passage this week and I thought back to those people and I'm thumbing through my phone and I'm looking at pictures and I'm seeing follower of Christ, believer in the Messiah, believer in Christ, redeemed by Christ. And I'm thinking, God's faithful. God's faithful. 
God's faithful. God's faithful. He's keeping His promises. There's a remnant that will be redeemed and God will be gracious to save His nation. There's one last place where we see God's faithfulness demonstrated. It's given in verse 6. And it is that God's faithfulness is demonstrated in the nature of grace. At the end of verse 5, he draws attention to the fact that the remnant is made by God's gracious choosing. It has to be that way because he says in verse 6, but if it is by grace, we read that word if and we think, well, it might be, it might not be, but that's not the sense of it. This sense is, this, this is a certainty. This is a reality. So we might better give the sense of it this way, but since it is by grace, so God has chosen by grace, and since it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If you want to have grace, if you want to have grace from God, it can't, your salvation, your redemption, your sanctification, none of it can be by works. Remember chapter 4? He said in verse 4, Now to the one who works... Speaking about righteousness to the one who works, his, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? If you want to work for your salvation, it's, you're not going to get grace. All you're going to get is what you're due, which frankly is bad news because no one is righteous. But to the one who does not work, the one who says, I cannot work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. He gets righteousness by grace through faith. It's got to be that way. That's, that's the only way that grace works. That's what grace is. And it is not just a grace that saves us, but it is the grace that keeps us. We are not kept by the law. We are not kept by our own righteousness, but we are kept and preserved. Verse 5, as a remnant. Verse 6, as all people everywhere, we are kept and preserved by grace alone. And God has graciously made a promise to Israel and He will graciously keep that promise. Israel is preserved. She is not rejected. And she is preserved only because of God's grace. But friends, that also means that these, true, these truths in these verses are also relevant for God's relationship to all His people who belong to Him. Every believer in Christ is kept and preserved by God. He does not reject His people. And He does not reject His people solely on the basis of grace. It's not what we are. He keeps us. Oh, friend, know that He keeps us. But He keeps us only on the basis of of His grace. And Paul has asked two questions in this passage. We might ask a third one. And the third one is, are you being kept by God? I ask that question not to ask, is God sufficient to keep you? He is. I ask that question to ask this question, are you in Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because if you have believed in Jesus Christ, He will keep you. And if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, then you are not being kept. Well, you are being kept, but you're being kept for wrath and the pouring out of His wrath. And friend, there's a way out. 
In fact, just look up to verse 21 of chapter 10. As for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It wasn't just Israel that was disobedient and rebellious. It was us too. It was me. And his arms are open wide. Come to him. And he will save you. Turn away from your sin. Trust that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid the penalty of your sin and he died to redeem you from sin so that you can walk in obedience with him. And friend, if that is your position, he will never reject you. The story is told about G. Campbell Morgan. G. Campbell Morgan was a preacher in London, if I remember correctly, about the turn of the century, turn of the 19th century into the 20th. And um, he longed to be a preacher, ultimately ended up preaching at London Tabernacle, which had a subsequent pastor of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones who followed after him. But before he got there, he, as a young man, went to be ordained. And he was examined by a group of pastors and elders, along with some other men that wanted ordination for the ministry. And he was turned down. Absolutely devastated him. He wrote in his journal, I don't have the exact quote, but he wrote something like, Darkness, all is dark, everything is black. To communicate to his family what had done, what had happened, he sent his father a telegram with a single word, rejected. And his father, in great wisdom, sent him back a six-word telegram, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven. Oh, friends, if you are in Christ, that is your place. Will he reject you if he's made a promise to you? Will he reject you if you are his? Will he reject you if you are in the family? No, he will no more reject you than he can reject his people Israel. He will keep his promise. Our Father, we thank you for the reminder of this word. What a gracious word this is. What a compelling word. What a hopeful word. For we too often have word, heard words that are discouragement to us. We have, we have too often heard words of rejection. We have too often heard people turn their backs on us. We have too often been the recipients of people who have failed us, rejected us, walked away from us. What hope that you will not reject us. Father, you're faithful. When you make a promise, you must keep it. You're bound by your character. You're bound by your will. You are incapable of breaking a promise. And Father, as we come to this table, might that be our hope as we remember the one who sealed your promise and brought it to us the God-man, Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.